This morning we're back in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John, chapter 10. And we're going to deal with the topic of sheep and shepherds this morning. It was a while back, uh, actually a number of years, I came across an article coming from Turkey and a very fascinating article regarding sheep, and so I filed it away, knowing that I would use it at some point, and today's the day. Short article coming from the peninsula, a paper from Qatar, Qatar's leading English daily news, and the title of the article was this, 400 sheep fall off cliff in Turkey. You kind of want to click on that one online, don't you? You're kind of curious what that means. 400 sheep fall off cliff in Turkey. So here's the article. This is not very long, and I'll read it all for you here. Istanbul. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van Province near Iran, but broke the fall of another 1,100 animals who survived. Newspaper reports said yesterday, shepherds from the village neglected the flock while eating their breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. I laughed a little when I read that story, only because I can picture what that was probably like. First of all, just so you know, um, sheep don't commit suicide. Uh, they don't have a bad day and think they're just going to end it all. They're, they're sheep. Um, the problem with sheep, though, is that they're really dumb. Like, really dumb. Uh, but they're also very committed to a leader. They're, they're committed to a leader and will follow a leader anywhere. So much so, they'll, they'll follow a leader at a very high cost to them, like falling off a cliff. Can you picture in that story what it would have been like for the shepherds? realizing what is happening, uh, setting down their breakfast as quickly as possible and running towards the, the cliff as they see sheep after sheep falling to their death. I'm sure running to the cliff, yelling, screaming, shouting some way desperately to, to get their attention, to, to stop and to follow them back to safety. Uh, you can imagine the, the shame and, and sadness, these, these men that are charged with caring now for these sheep, and they, they can peer off and see them down at the bottom of death. You know, it really wasn't the, the fault of the sheep. It was the, the fault of the shepherds who had completely neglected their flock, all that they could enjoy their breakfast. They thought only of themselves, and they should have known, they should have reminded themselves that sheep aren't very intelligent. They're easily swayed. And so while these men sat around to enjoy their breakfast and satisfy their stomachs, the flock flew off this cliff and died. This is what happens when sheep do not have a good shepherd. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 10, the first 21 verses, and we're going to look at this, a good shepherd, what a good shepherd is. We'll see the imposters in life, the first point. The second is the entrance to life, and third, the supply of life. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me as I read John chapter 10, starting in verse 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, 
for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Father, this morning we again come before your throne thanking you for the opportunity we have to come and to worship together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood. We thank you for the privilege we have to have your word in our written language before us, to study it, to read it, to learn it. God, I pray this morning that you would speak through me that you would be the teacher and the guide, that we would understand what your word says and that we would apply it to our life. May we come away different and changed this morning based upon your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to see this morning is the imposters in life, the imposters, the, the fake shepherds as, as Jesus begins here. John writes and begins a chapter with a parable. If you remember back a few weeks when we covered John chapter 9, it was the story of, of a man who was blind from birth. And, and Jesus comes and heals the man, and then a trial in, in ensues with the formerly blind man and the Pharisees. Back and forth it goes, and the purpose is really to trap Jesus. And in John 9, 24, in the midst of this trial, they, they, they tell the blind man, give glory to God, be honest. We know that this man's a sinner, but this man's not convinced he realizes Jesus has done something miraculous and doesn't fall in line with them. But they, they don't. They, they think he's a fraud. They're unwilling to look at the proof standing right before them. And what's his response, the blind man through it all? Well, at the end of the chapter, he, he believes when confronted with Jesus. Lord, I believe. And then he worships him. He worships him. There's a great division when we come to chapter 10. The choice is either blasphemy or worship. That's what it comes down to. Ultimately, it's the same choice for you today, sitting here. You either spurn God or you worship God. There is no middle road. There's no tolerating God and getting through. It's, it's one or the other. There's been some 
debate is the timing of chapter 10 in relation to chapter 9. When did this happen? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, chapter 9 shows us the failure of the religious leaders to shepherd this blind man who's now received sight. Their ministry to him was non-existent. Instead, he's used as a pawn for their benefit to try to discredit Jesus. They eventually throw the man out of the synagogue when he doesn't affirm what they think and what they teach. So chapter 10 opens with Jesus contrasting what the care looks like for his sheep with that of the religious leader's care and and his. If you remember at the end of chapter 9, after the blind, blind man realizes who Jesus is and begins to worship, the leaders then chime in. Look at chapter 9, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And it follows right into chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. There's, There's no break in between chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's, it's unmissable. Jesus is giving us a way to recognize a true shepherd versus thieves and robbers. The Pharisees are the thieves and robbers. They receive their position of shepherd-like leadership without the blessing of a gatekeeper. They're not faithful shepherds. They're the, the stranger in verse 5, as Jesus says. But the sheep of our great king belong to a different shepherd. They're not to be controlled by these imposters. Jesus gives a story to these men in these first six verses. He's testing them. Remember at the end of chapter 9, they they say we can see. And begin, now Jesus begins by by testing their vision. Can they truly see or are they blind? And Jesus never clearly says in in these six verses that he is the shepherd, but it's in the plain context of what happened in chapter 9 that he is. These religious leaders claim authority, but really have no care. They have no concern for the sheep. And these six verses are really a word picture of what has transpired in chapter 9. Jesus paints the picture of sheep in their home. He says they live in a sheep fold. Hendrickson, in his commentary, says it was a roofless enclosure uh, to an open field. It consisted of a wall made of rough stone. Sometimes, though, it was even a cave that served as a purpose. They would gather their flock into a sheepfold that was enclosed on three sides, but left an opening more like a door. And that door was guarded by a gatekeeper, a professional gatekeeper. Someone was paid. If someone wanted an entry that was not allowed, they would look for another way in. They avoided the door. And we know, right, anyone that avoids the door to get access is, is not a good person. As Jesus says, they're a thief, they're a robber. They're up to no good. The word thief is kleptos, which means one who steals. And the word robber is lastos, which means an assailant who uses violence. This is the terms that Jesus uses of these Pharisees. He's identifying the motive of these religious leaders. Their, their ministry was devoted not for the good of people, but for their own gain. J.C. Ryle says the object was to show the entire unfitness of the Pharisees to be pastors and teachers of the Jews because they had not taken up the office in the right spirit and with the right understanding of the work that they had to do. They're imposters. 
There's a contrast from the robber and thief, though. It's the true shepherd. He knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. Look at verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. They, they listen to his voice. They know his voice. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. It said that Palestinian shepherds would name their sheep according to their characteristics. One might be called big ears or fluffy or stinky. Kind of thought of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, right? Doc and grumpy and happy and sleepy and bashful and sneezy and dopey. Each name identified something of the person named. Jesus knows us by name. Maybe it's not just Jeff, but a characteristic that he knows us by. What name does he know you by? Are you Doc or happy or sleepy or grumpy? There are a few grumpies here this morning. I'll talk to your family. I'll get the truth regardless. What name does he know you by? Jesus knows us in profound ways. He knows our past with its failures and hurts. He knows our present. He knows the unrealized longings. Our shepherd knows us in the most intimate ways. He knows all the things that are odd about us. I sometimes wonder if he knows us by the things that we would not want to be called. Does he know you as fearful? Faithless or unhappy? Or are you known to be joyful, peaceful, content? Whatever the name, we know from this verse that if we are his, he takes us as his own. The good shepherd loves his sheep, and the Bible teaches us that he purchased their salvation with his own blood on the cross, freeing us from the penalty of our sins. And he calls out to us, and we follow him. Verse 4 says when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The sheepfold that he mentions here is that of the Jews that are listening as he's speaking. They're waiting, their Messiah. Later on in the chapter, Jesus mentions that there's other sheep. There's other sheepfold that, that he's gonna bring in also. We'll get to that. And the point is that whether we have come to Jesus out of Judaism or any other religious a background, when we follow Jesus, we leave our former identity and we now enter into his flock. No one follows Jesus and remains the same. We're converted, we're changed. We won't continue to live the same life as we did before we knew Jesus. And Jesus says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Our shepherd goes before us. And one of the great task for a shepherd is to go before driving predators away, preparing green pastures, removing poisonous plants. And this is what Jesus does as he goes before his children. This is Jesus's purpose in coming to earth. You know, as this chapter is written, it's just a few weeks before he will die. Our good shepherd was preparing the way for life. He was headed to the cross where he would lay down his life for his sheep. He would drive away the penalty for sin. He would remove the condemnation. He would prepare for us a home 
to live forever with him. Jesus would go before us into the valley of death. Verse 6 ends with this in an explanation of how this was received. It says, John says, the, the figure of speech Jesus used with them, they did not understand what he was saying to them. He was giving them a parable. He, he was giving them another chance to show if they really were blind or not. They, they tell Jesus at the end of chapter 9 that we see, but do they see or are they blind? Well, verse 6 says that they're blind. They don't understand Jesus' words. This parable, this picture carried no meaning for them because they were unable to see. They're guilty. In one sense, Jesus is making things clearer. In another sense, he's making things more offensive. And so he moves from this imagery in verses 1 through 6 to another, another picture in verses 7 through 10. That Jesus is the door. So my second point is the entrance to life. First, see the imposters in life. The second is the, the entrance to life. Verse Seven. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And well, one response for those of uh, the Pharisees, those that are hearing it is, to say that Jesus, this is, this is foolishness. Jesus, you can't be the door and the shepherd. How does this work? And yet another group says, Jesus, tell us how you are the door. Tell us what this means for us. Jesus, tell us, explain to us what it means that you're our shepherd. What does that mean for us? And to the blind, he offers foolishness. To those who are desperate to see, he offers hope. And it all comes back to our Savior. It all comes back to Jesus. All Christian truth finds its ultimate meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the, the world's events find their meaning in the work of Jesus Christ. All of your life's events find their meaning in Jesus Christ. And the singular focus in all of it is Jesus. Now, I just mentioned it earlier, the different kind of sheepfolds. And, and Jesus mentions two in this chapter. And in the parable, he mentions a more durable one with high walls and a paid guard. But now he mentions one that's a little more rustic. These are more common out in the fields. They are smaller and less substantial. Instead of a door, they had more of a, a larger opening. After bringing the sheep in, the shepherd would then lay his own body across the space. Sir George Adam Smith, one of the uh, great Old Testament scholars that I read about this week in my study, was, was once traveling through Palestine when he met a shepherd and his, and his sheep, and they struck up a conversation, and then the shepherd showed him his fold and where he led his sheep every night. And he, and he explained to them the, the process and what it looked like, that it had four walls that were there, a makeshift uh, sheep fold. And, and Sir George asked the shepherd, is that opening there for the sheep to enter? And he said, yes, it is. And then he said, when they're... The shepherd said, when they're in there, they're perfectly safe. And Sir George remarked, but there's no door. How can they be safe? And the shepherd responded, I am the door. When the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space and no sheep goes out but across my body and no wolf comes in unless it crosses my body. He says, I am the door. 
Jesus says in our passage this morning that he is that door. What does that mean? A few things, I believe. First, Jesus is the door. He's the only door. It's it's exclusive with Jesus Christ. There's no other options. It's not door number one, door number two, door number three. There's the door. It's all or nothing with Jesus Christ. And this is the third I am statement in the Gospel of John. There's gonna be four more before the book is done. And each of these statements is really a sermon in itself. And if you can understand each of these statements, you've understood the very heart of the Christian faith. And with each of these I am statements, Jesus is clear. It's only through him that we have salvation. And this is important to mention. I'm not gonna, uh, we, we can't grow cold of this or forget this in our relation to the world in which we live. We need to reiterate this a lot because the culture that we live in feel this is too insensitive. That we would dare mention that salvation is only one way. You will ruffle people up in your neighborhood when you mention that salvation is only one way. But just because it ruffles them doesn't mean we shy away from the truth. People who who will reject that Jesus is the only way of salvation truly show that they don't understand the reality of their sin and their need for salvation. You know, a man walking in the desert, dying of thirst, will not complain if he comes to only one source of water. Why is there only one? He won't. He'll drink. And a man, likewise, dying of cancer, will not object that there's only one person who is willing to donate bone marrow so they can live. He'll not just say, why? Why one? He'll take it. He'll gladly receive the donation. And a sinner, realizing his sin and the destruction that awaits him if he stays in his sin, the judgment that will come when this life is over, will not object that Jesus took his sin upon himself and died on the cross. He won't say, why is there only one way? He'll receive. And this makes the point that unbelievers, their true objection to Jesus is really an objection to the fact of God's judgment against their sin. Unwilling to confess their guilt. They demand another way. Any other way. Any other way to bring salvation. And they delight in saying that there's many ways. But there's only one way. Only one way to receive the eternal forgiveness for our sins. And our entrance, as Jesus says, is through him. He is the door. Jesus later says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. So Jesus is the way. Second thing I want you to notice is this offer is open to all. Jesus says, all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am, verse nine, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture." Jesus is the only way for salvation, and this offer is open to all. It doesn't say that you have to come from a right family or have a clean record or prove yourself in some ways. No, it says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And some maybe will see this as a possible contradiction of Jesus' own teaching on election and predestination. We looked at John 6, 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
This means that all who believe come to Christ because they were chosen by God and given to the Son. And Jesus later affirms this teaching in the chapter, and he speaks about eternal security. In verse 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And from this verse and many others, it's clear we know that God is the one who chooses and God is the one who gives salvation and he is the one who keeps us. And the gospel, though, is offered genuinely and freely to any and all. This is not a contradiction. These two teachings present the gospel from two different perspectives, one from the side of the divine decree and the other from man's opportunity. The well-known preacher James Montgomery Boyce tells of a woman who came to faith in Christ during a sermon preached by Donald Gray Barnhouse when he dealt with these matters. Although the woman had been raised in a Christian home, she was kept from coming to Christ by, by worries that she was not one of the elect. And, and Barnhouse helped her by putting it this way. He says, imagine that the cross has a door in it. All you are asked to do is to go through on one side, the side facing you, there's written an invitation, whosoever will may come. And you stand there with your sin upon you and you wonder if you should enter or not. And finally you do. And as you do, the burden of your sin drops away. You are safe and free. And joyful, you turn around and see written on the backside of the cross through which you've now entered the words chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And at this, Barnhouse invited those hearing to accept God's invitation to enter through faith in Christ, and this to find that they were secure in God's sovereign and eternal plan. And at that point, the woman came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior and entered into eternal life. And for the rest of her life, she would say that it was an understanding of how a sovereign God freely offers salvation to sinners that enabled her to believe. And Boyce was able to relate this story with confidence because it was his own mother. And the same should be true for you. Do you exhaust yourself going through your mind of all the what ifs? Exhausting your emotions, wondering if you're chosen, where you stand in God's eternal plan. Instead, you should act on the invitation that God has presented to you, sealed in the blood of his only son. And Jesus says to you, seated here this morning, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The third thing I want you to, to mention or see actually as I mentioned in these verses is what we receive as sheep when we enter through Jesus Christ. The, the benefits. There are three of them here that I see in verses seven through 10. We're saved, we're safe, and we're satisfied. We're saved not just for the future but for the past and for our present. It affects, of who, it affects us who we are and what happens to us from the beginning to the end. We're saved from sin's penalty and power and presence. And we're saved in Christ. We're immediately saved from the penalty of sin and we're, we're saved from the power of sin. We no longer have to live a life of sin because it lacks the power it once did before we knew Jesus Christ. And we're saved from the presence of sin. The Bible calls this sanctification. They were made into the likeness of Jesus Christ more and more each day as we walk in obedience to his word. And we're safe. This is referring back to the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 9 that we will go in and out and find pasture. To go in and out means security. 
It means safety. In Christ's day, when a man could go in and out without fear meant that his country was at peace and the rulers had things under control. And we want safety, don't we? Jesus says, enter through me and you will experience safety, eternal safety, but also present safety. We are driven to despair and worry when things in our world don't go the way they, we think they should go. We lose work or income and we lose our health we lose our financial security, and so quickly we then jump to a conclusion that we're no longer safe. And as sheep, we can easily go astray from our shepherd thinking that we can handle this on our own. And when, when we're in Christ, we're a Christian, we're believers, no matter what happens on this earth, we're safe and secure in him. You know, the world cannot offer that. The world has no idea what we're talking about here. That's why when things don't go the way the world thinks it should go, people begin to worry and picket, right? And yell and complain. You know what bothers, about, bothers me in the news about all that's happening here is not that they're picketing. It's that it shows their unbelief. That bothers me. And we get angry about the fact that they're picketing or that they're saying, look, we're lost. We have no hope. We have no security. That's what the world is saying to us. But as believers, we don't have security in this world. We have it in our good shepherd. But none of us want just mere safety. We're not, we're not created just to have Safety, the human heart wants infinitely more than just safety. You know, safety is necessary. We want to be protected from that which could destroy us. But more than this, we want life. We want life. And more than just a plain old life, we want an abundant life. And this is the third thing that we have as benefit. We're, we're satisfied. We have life in Jesus, an overflowing life, a deep life, a joyful life. We don't, we don't just want to survive, we want to thrive. And we're made for this. And through Jesus Christ and through him alone, we, we have salvation and safety and satisfaction. We can go in and out and find pasture, protection and plenty and the deep soul satisfaction for this life. You know, abundant life is not, is not about having a lot of stuff. It's about having peace and joy. It's having God. We get God. Jesus continues, though, to bring a clear distinction between the shepherds of the day and himself. Look at verse 10. The thief, the shepherds of that day, come only to steal and kill and destroy. These shepherds were only concerned with their own welfare and not the sheep. We see this played out in chapter 9. They're only there to steal and kill and destroy. And this isn't only just the assessment of these religious leaders in, in his time, but this is really of false religious leaders today. The false teachers today that peddle God's truth for a dollar. Those who preach a tolerance of sin. Those who neglect God's words and so that their church can grow larger and larger. And the world still seeks leaders like these. D.A. Carson, writing his commentary, aptly says, 
The world still seeks its humanistic political saviors, its Hitlers, its Stalins, its Pol Pots. And only too late does it learn that they blatantly confiscate personal property. They come only to steal. And they ruthlessly trample human life under their foot. They can only to kill. And scornfully savage all that is valuable. They come only to destroy. It isn't the Christian doctrine of heaven that's a myth. It's the humanist dream of utopia that's a myth. And the prosperity's gospel central claim is that God wants all of his children to experience earthly wealth and perfect health and worldly success in every way. And prosperity preachers like Joel Olstein and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Myers distort the gospel in traumatic ways. You compare the teaching of, of Olstein's book, Your Best Left Now, compare it to scripture. James, who says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And Jesus, as he says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves will break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, neither moth or rust destroys where thieves break in and steal. And then Jesus concludes that passage with another stinging rebuke to all those that think that attaining wealth is good thing on earth. And he says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus calls us as believers, as the sheep, to self-denial. We're to take up our cross daily and follow him. Jesus didn't come to earth to give you a Rolls Royce. He came to bring life and to give it abundantly. Having peace with God is much more costly than a nice home and a nice car. So we've seen the imposters in life, the entrance to life, and last is the supply of life. Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, and he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will, be, and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. These are some of my favorite verses in all the Gospel of John. He is our good shepherd. Another way of translating the word good here in the Greek is beautiful. He's our beautiful shepherd. And when Jesus is talking to his audience here, he knew Psalm 23. He knew that psalm. Most of you here this morning know that psalm. It's a deep song. It's the great shepherd who takes me to calm places, the one who restores my weary and aching heart, the one who provides me complete safety and deep satisfaction and peace. And reading Psalm 23 touches a deep nerve. It, it awakens a deep yearning, so deep that we sometimes walk away and look for it in other people. 
to try to find our shepherd somewhere else. I bring up Psalm 23 this morning because it's not just good enough that you know the psalm. Many in our world who have no attachment to God, who have no attachment to the church, they, they know this psalm. They know God as a, as a shepherd, but he isn't their shepherd. Have you allowed Psalm 23 and what it means and what this passage here in John 10 to really sink into your life? To understand that he is your great shepherd and you are his sheep? You know, a child can understand the idea of God being a shepherd. They can hear the stories and, and read the book and see the pictures. Yet at the same time, the understanding of God as our shepherd will fill up the greatest holes in your soul, no matter how deep they are. And when our text here this morning says, I am the good shepherd, he is telling us that he has to be everything to you. He has to be everything. Because when the Bible talks about people, human beings, it talks of us as sheep. And as you can imagine, this is not a very flattering image for us. Now, just like the story I shared at the beginning of my sermon, sheep are helpless and dim-witted. They're dumb. They can easily wander away. They can lose sight of who they are or where they should be. And sheep can walk into danger with no effort and not understand the implications. Sheep are usually not able to provide for themselves but need to be fed by someone else. A sheep will eat poison plants if somebody's not there to show them what to eat or to give them what to eat. A sheep can get caught on its back like a turtle and un unable to turn over. Sheep need a shepherd. Now, a shepherd is, is someone who lives with the sheep. The shepherd never goes home. They live with the sheep. They sleep with the sheep. He does everything for the sheep. The shepherd is the protector and the provider and the physician and the leader and the guide and the owner. The shepherd is everything to the sheep. Consider what that means to you. It means that God has to be everything to us. You know, in John 15, Jesus says, without me, you could do nothing. It's true. Do we believe that? Do we want to believe that? And really, everything in our heart resents that, goes against that. You know, we like the sound of the Lord is my shepherd, but we really hate it. We, we hate the truth of it, really. We, we like the sound of it, but we hate the truth of it. Because your heart basically is telling you on a regular basis that you're really a good person, that you can really handle this on your own, that you're more intelligent than, than most give you credit for. You've got this. And so for most of us, in our heart, in our, in our reflection, we don't want a shepherd. You know, what we want is a consultant. We want someone who's on retainer that we can go to when we need some advice or help. A shepherd is different. 
We need to face the fact that we need a shepherd. Not just slightly need, but desperately need a shepherd. We don't need the hired hand, as Jesus says, who doesn't own the sheep and he sees a wolf coming and and leaves the sheep and flees. No, He, he flees, Jesus says, because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. He's a hired hand. He, he's just there for a paycheck. He has no real attachment to the sheep. The hired hand sacrifices his job to save himself. But the shepherd sacrifices himself to save his sheep. This is what a shepherd does. Jesus says, I am not a hired hand. I'm not a hireling. I'm not just doing a job here. These two kinds of shepherds, one who's hired to do the work and the other, as Jesus says, is one who owns the sheep. Jesus says, I am the one who owns the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus is saying the shepherd's wealth was the sheep. And in near the Palestine time, the shepherd's entire wealth was the sheep. And so the, the sheep were the shepherd's joy and pride and honor and wealth. They were the shepherd's glory. They were everything the shepherd owned. So Jesus is actually saying, you're, you're my pride. You're my joy. You're my glory. I own you. I died for you. Verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows his own sheep and they know him and he lays down his life. He knows you completely. He knows you all the way down to the bottom. You can do nothing that surprises God. He knows you. He knows you intimately. And yet, He lays down his life for you. And I know that there's some listening this morning who have been holding back. You've not committed to Christ because you feel that you're too bad. You're too too far gone, you think. And Jesus says, "I, I know you. I know everything about you. And I lay down my life for you. And as believers, we need to be reminded of this glorious truth, that our, that our shepherd knows us all the way down to the bottom, all the way to the sky. He knows all of us. He still laid down his life for us. He died for his sheep. Verse 11 says, he laid down his life. There are a couple of different Greek words that you could use for that little word for in verse 11. It literally means instead of. So if you have your... Bible there in front of you, and it's your Bible. I want you to write in the margin of your Bible, instead of. Because it literally should mean, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life instead of the sheep. He died in our place. He is our substitution. And not just for the Jews. No, in verse 16, there are more. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. 
one family of Jews and Gentiles together, one faith, one family, one flock, one shepherd, all together. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. The father loves the son because of the son's utter dedication to the father's will. He lays down his life on his own terms. He was not forced by the people to die. He died in his own terms. He died willingly. And he's the only one that could ever say that he has complete control of when he dies and when he rises. No one else can say that. As we end here this morning, what's the response of those listening? Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? To some of the listeners that day and also some today, Jesus is teaching about sacrificial love, that a good shepherd who lays down his life is sheer madness. It's crazy talk. This is why they say in verse 20 that he must have a demon, yet others see the miracle of the healing in, in, in chapter 9. What do you say? What do you say about Jesus? Is he your good shepherd? One author wrote about Jesus. As I die in the dark so they can live in the light. I take their cross so they can have my crown. I take their punishment that they can have my reward. I die instead of them. Yes, they're sheep. Yes, they're foolish. Yes, they're rebellious. But this is the reason they can be my glory. This is the reason they can be my joy. This is the reason I can love them in spite of their wrongdoings. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the door. He is the gate to everlasting life. And Jesus is the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is truly the good shepherd. The rest are imposters. And he's the only way to God. He's the only shepherd that is committed to the sheep, to the point of death. And he's worthy to be followed. He is worthy to live for. He is worthy to sacrifice our life for. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for this passage. And for the remembrance again that you are a shepherd. You give us everything we need and more than we need. Even the most difficult places in life are like green meadows as long as you're there. And the, the desert and difficult seasons in our life, you give and you quench our thirst. You give us peace. Peace that we could never find anywhere else. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. We recognize, God, that you never promised us a stress-free life or an easy journey. But you've promised never to leave us and never to forsake us even in the darkest valley. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to remember. 
that you're close by, that you love us, and that you won't let anything happen that's outside of your plan. Though enemies threaten, you protect us and you feed us. You cause our our cup to spill over in blessings. And because of Christ, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing will keep us out of heaven. God, we thank you that you are a great shepherd. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.